Welcome to another episode of Season 2 of Cohort W. I'm your host, USAWOC faculty member and the current Warren Officer Historical Foundation Fellow, CW5, Leonard Mominy. In today's episode, our incredible guests will share some personal and professional experience, mentorship, and leadership as a senior Warren Officer. The senior Warren Officer will then examine how this insight should ultimately influence action, development, and education for those they serve and the greater cohort. The conversation is directed at leader development, talent management, and what they are doing to support the Army for the future fight. Finally, all Cohort W guests have an opportunity to share a favorite anecdote from their career as a senior warrant officer. Today, I am joined by the USAWOC Deputy Commandant for the Army National Guard, CW5 Coniglia. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Hey, thank you so much for uh, having me. This is such an honor and, and a great opportunity to kind of put our message out there and, and represent uh, not only the uh, National Guard, but just the college and, and where we're coming from, and what we're doing. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely. And believe me, it is our honor. Okay. I don't know if you know this, sir, but you are actually our first Compo 2, our Army National Guard uh, guest for the year. So you do have that to your resume now. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a, it, Like I said, it's an honor. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Can you share with the audience just a little bit about yourself? Uh, tell us who you are, where you come from. And one of the fan favorites, how long have you been a warrant officer? Absolutely. Again, um, uh, CW5 Jeff Coniglia. I originate from uh, Nebraska, so i part of the Nebraska Army National Guard. Actually been in the Army for 36 years, if you can believe that. Um, I've been a warrant officer for uh, 33 years uh, now. Uh, kind of went through the program back in uh, 1988. I showed up down here at Fort Rucker and uh, graduated in 1989. I was a warrant officer all the way through flight school at that point in time. So it's a tremendous record of service, sir. Uh, what's your MOS and, and MOS title? And then let's kind of, uh, once we talk about that, dive into what your current duty position is. You bet. So my current MOS, I'm a 155 Echo, but um, over the years, and, and we'll probably get to this a little bit later too, but uh uh, multiple MOSs, mostly in the aviation field, obviously, um, as as airframes change, those MOSs change a little bit, but uh, always in the aviation branch. Again, a 155 Echo, that's a fixed wing or C-12 pilot, C-12 SP by trade before I came down here to the uh, to the college. So here at USAWOC, I'm actually in a 011 Alpha position, uh, which is MOS immaterial. And that currently I'm filling the uh, deputy commandant for the Army National Guard position down here at, at USAWOC. This is a, it's a Title 10, um, they call it an OTOT. It's a one-time occasional tour. So anybody across the nation, across the 54 um, states and territories that the National Guard has, can apply for the position and uh, come down here and represent the National Guard as one of the deputy commandants. So before we dive into this, the aviator in me wants to go back um, and and just <laughs> dig a little. 
because you said you've had multiple MOSs and this gets to the question, uh, how has your aviation career been different in the Army National Guard compared to what a warrant officer might experience in the active duty? Hey, that's a great question. And and honestly, it's it's pretty uh, humbling, too, because really, when you think about it from the National Guard perspective, we're a little bit different. We hold those same active duty compo one minimums. We, we do the same amount of flying, all those kind of things. But we have to balance, you know, our career and family, it, it, not, you know, mostly the career piece of it, um, along with doing the additional uh, flying and those kind of things. So I myself, I came back from flight school. I was, uh, I'll just kind of list a little bit of the airframes that I've flown over the years and been lucky enough to do. But the UH-1 Huey, um, I was uh, one of the first classes at Fort Rucker here. We didn't do the TH-55s. Um, we went straight into Hueys as the uh, primary trainer. And then at that time, it was called multi-track. So I, I went into the AH-1 Cobra and uh, flew gunships. Got back to my unit, and the Guard being the National Guard, we actually had UH-1 Mikes, the old gunships. So I had the opportunity to fly those when I got back and uh, fly with the Vietnam era pilots who taught me just a wealth of knowledge and how to fly the airframe. Over the years, I've flown the OH-58. Um, once we started the modernization, I flew UH-60, Alpha and Limas, the UH-72, the C-12 on the fixed wing side, and the UC-35. Really, when you look at that expanse of 33 years, we've gone through a lot of transitions and modernization. Uh, so that's why the MOSs have changed. In the National Guard, too, we don't have the depth or the pool of pilots. So we have the ability to kind of do um, training or the ability to fly uh, multiple airframes, uh, especially if you're full time. I myself, I flew uh, many years. I, I was doing civilian EMS. So really, that was my background or my civilian job while I went as a traditional guardsman um, or an M-Day uh, on the reserve side, they call it a TPU soldier. But I would balance that, flying those air, uh, different airframes and then flying on the civilian side. I, I flew civilian EMS as well. Uh, accumulated about 10,000 hours. So just been in the cockpit for a little bit. <laughs> so it's uh, it's been an outstanding career. Um, and I'm telling you, being in the Guard, it's just a multitude of missions. Very unique from you know, the domestic to the overseas operations and capabilities I've been able to do. Um, you, support, you support not only the federal mission, but our state mission as well and saving lives and doing those kind of things back in the state. Had the opportunity to fly on five of the seven continents. And I, I can't say I wouldn't have done that if the Army and the Army National Guard didn't allow me to uh, have those opportunities throughout my career. You know, I'm going to assume you did not make it to Antarctica. <laughs> you got it. That is what <laughs> I, I got to find a way, right? <laughs> no, you got it. I, I think at this point, you know, uh, life goals, uh, that's where that gets filed <laughs> under. Uh, but I, I was curious because a little over 10,000 hours for our listeners, if you take that 10,000 hours, you divide that by 24 hours in a day, it's <laughs> 416 days of this gentleman's existence that he has spent at the controls of an aircraft. Aviators like that um, are few and far between. Uh, you mentioned you're in an O11 Alpha position. 
can you just give a little bit of background about what it is you do as a uh, senior warrant officer for National Guard at the Career College? You bet. Basically, my position as the deputy commandant for the National Guard, I'm the principal advisor to the commandant and the deputy commandant. And uh, really, there's a lot that goes into that because not only do I advise on National Guard affairs, but I serve as TRADOC senior Army uh, senior Army Guard advisor, they call it. I have monthly meetings with uh, TRADOC DCG for the Army National Guard, uh, kind of keeping Major General Bissell and um, kind of updated on what's happening here at the college, our initiatives and our modernization efforts and what's moving forward. I represent the Army National Guard on those aspects as well as we sit in and we do the development of not only WOCS changes, the ILE changes, and the SSE changes. I, I have direct input and able to kind of represent COMPO2 on any of those initiatives and where we need to go. I also have to kind of work with um, the uh, Warrant Officer Senior Advisory Council, and that's the 54 different CCWOs uh, throughout the states and territories. I'll work with them closely on not only their students for WCS, ILE, SSE, but just uh, modernization initiatives, any of those kind of things, I'll be working with the CCWOs on that as well. And then I put another hat on, and then I work with National Guard Bureau training. Um, so again, that's one group. Um, because we have 27 RTIs that I, I work with uh, that teach WCS. Um, again, I have to work with NGB Tri on the funding, um, our SMDR cycle of how many seats we're going to push uh, students through and those kind of things. So I, I do that. And then I also coordinate as a senior guard advisor with the COEs. So we all, the, the W5s at the COEs from the National Guard, we kind of keep connected and synced up on any of the changes that uh, go through. So the plate's a little bit full, but I, I gotta tell you, it is a great opportunity for folks. If you're thinking about coming down to the college, I have to tell you, you can make so much, so much of an impact on different things, whether it's the PME development, whether it's the day-to-day -day mentorship of our WOCS, ILE students, SSE students, you you have touch points with those students throughout and it, it's a phenomenal experience. You threw out a lot of acronyms there a minute ago, uh, but one of the ones in particular that you mentioned that may be a little foreign for the uninitiated listener, you said RTI, 27 of them, what are those? Thank you for bringing that up. So the, the regional training institutes have been developed. We do that in the National Guard. And really, it's an initiative not only with, with the warrant officers, but we do it with uh, the NCO, NCOES. We'll do it with officers, OCS, um, those kind of things. So we have the warrant officer candidate school at 27 RTIs. When we talk about that, you really got to look at the perspective of how many seats so our mission in FY23 is to create 795 new warrant officers. Well, at the college here, um, when we go through how many seat allocations each combo gets, I only have uh, for the Army National Guard 361 seats for FY23. So that puts 434 candidates that have to go to the regional training institutes, those RTIs. So they, they are a critical piece of making our mission for making new warrant officers. And really the way that's done is in two phases. Phase one is they'll attend 
five uh, weekends or five, we call it 10 IDTs or individual training periods. So that's five different weekends. So over a five month period, they'll do one weekend uh, each of those, uh, of those five months. They'll knock out uh, two of our exams uh, during that time frame. They'll knock out the 10K foot march. They'll do a lot of the academic piece of the puzzle throughout that time frame. And many times they're doing uh, a cub briefing and, and briefing senior leaders uh, during that time frame. So knocking out everything that what we do here at the college with our WOCS program, they're doing it over that five month period. So they still have to maintain <laughs> their jobs. They're still maintaining family in it. And then they're also uh, coming into the RTI and knocking out WOCS on that on that weekend. So. When it culminates, they have a phase two that they have to attend, those candidates do, and it's a 14-day period. That is what's considered their annual training. And uh, they go to either Camp Atterbury in Indiana, or they'll go to Fort McClellan in Alabama here and, and knock out those 14 days. And again, they'll take two more exams. Um, they'll do uh, land navigation at that point in time and uh, a lot of our other assessments uh, to, to finally graduate uh, that phase two and become warrant officers. It gives that traditional soldier or the M-Day soldier the opportunity uh, to either choose to come to Fort Rucker or they can go through their RTI, that regional training institute that is, is a critical piece for uh, creating new warrant officers. And for anybody listening who may have been on the fence about becoming an Army Warrant Officer, now you know there's multiple ways to get after that. So don't stay on the fence too long. Come on over. It's pretty nice over here. It absolutely is. <clears throat> Obviously, the RTIs is an incredibly important mission to what we do for the Army as a as a cohort. Extremely proud of the RTIs, you know. Um, You've got uh, CW5 Ron Baird, who is the uh, CCWO for Indiana, and basically he becomes the deputy commandant when they do that phase two at the RTI. Last year, they graduated um, 238 uh, brand new warrant officers out of their RTI. And then at Fort McClellan, Alabama, you've got CW5 Tracy Jolly, uh, again, the CCWO for Alabama, but he acts as the deputy commandant during their phase two. Um, at the RTI, and they graduated 110. So again, that's a heavy lift from those both of those locations to train that many warrant officers over a 14-day period, and culminating for their phase two. So I appreciate their hard work, and really, it's the staff. You know, when you think about what goes into what we do here at the college, all of these folks, the TAC officers, instructors, this is all volunteer above and beyond their normal uh, duty uh, description. So, so really, it's it's quite the lift or the heavy lift or the it's incredible to see the dedication to the development of the cohort and giving back from those warrant officers that participate in those programs and keep those running. You know, we we know that you are not the senior warrant officer for the entire Army National Guard, but you are a senior leader in the Guard. And so I, I just want to ask, uh, what are some warrant officer centric concerns that the Guard is currently facing? That's a great question. And really, um, when you look at it, the role of the National Guard, it continues to expand. And really, as we modernize, we know how important the warrant officers are 
those technical warrant officers and the roles that they fill are critical to the modernization. You know, when we look at some of the cyber, the space, those elements that are picked up by the National Guard in our modernization efforts, you know, some of our field artillery, the ADA piece of the puzzle, um, those those roles are critical as we change and as the um, Army National Guard modernizes. So some of the concerns is, you know, we still continue to have not only the uh, domestic mission, the state missions, and those roles have it critically, you know, they're critical to the states to, and, and the support there. Because you look at the COVID-19 response, you look at the uh, capital response that we had in January, really the Guard picked up and played a critical role in that. And I'm going to tell you, the warrant officers play a role in that as well. So we have warrant officers out there doing the COVID testing during that time frame that had elements, you know, of 30 plus people kind of helping and working. So as an officer, you're going to be in charge of those teams. You're going to go out there in the communities and support those efforts. Um, and really, that has not slowed down. The uh, other thing that hasn't slowed, you know, the uh, the response to hurricane support, the uh, wild wildfires that have spread through uh, California, Western, um, the Western states as well. We continue to support those efforts with our, our aircraft and crews. And uh, really, it's it's just phenomenal because y- you think about it, we still have nearly 120, about 120,000 troops that are still deployed um, and doing the uh, federal mission um, overseas as well. So uh, it's it's a lot, and the guard steps up and 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 does a lot with the resources that we are given. So we ask a lot of our soldiers, uh, we ask a lot of the guard uh, folks, and, and really that's a little bit concerning because you know we don't want to burn them out, but at the same time, um, a lot of us when we give back to the communities, when we do those life saving responses, saving the communities, putting the fires out, or saving you know the flood relief and those kind of efforts. Uh, the COVID relief, um, it really makes it, it's the soldiers actually doing the missions that they have been trained for. So again, those are are things that are good, but at, at the same time, we are we are stretching uh, and working our folks pretty hard. Uh, what education or training, whether technical or Common Core, do you see being relevant and impactful to the development of uh, warrant officers? And can you explain why you feel that way? Absolutely. So really the technical aspect of things is, is pretty easy. We pick that up. Um, you know, a lot of us have been in our fields or, or done that type of work for, you know, for forever. And really we're good at it. We enjoy it. And that's what we thrive on. What I'm going to tell you from an educational standpoint, um, when you look at the progressive and sequential aspect of things, look at WOCS and then we're moving on to WILE and SSE. I have to tell you the communications, both written and oral communication aspect of what we teach, and as we progress, that is the key element to make any warrant officer successful. When you look at a common core and the things that are going to make you successful as a warrant officer is your ability, both in written communication, the ability to brief your senior leaders on you know whether you've got issues with a system that you're working on or you've got... Uh, the ability to change an MTO or TDA, those kind of things, you have to articulate that aspect of it. And if you don't have the skill set or the ability, 
that's what we provide from the college. And that's what we're continuing to develop here at the college and looking at those. So really that communication aspect of things is it is really critical um, in, in my opinion uh, to getting your point across and making you successful as a warrant officer. You might be talking to a, a, a W3 or W4 out there that aspires to someday rise to the position that you hold. What do you say to them? As a CW3 or 4, really, I want them to understand that they're part of a team. Um, I, I love the enthusiasm as they go forward. But uh, if I can say anything to them, you know, it's, again, that humility piece of the puzzle as we as we move forward. And you getting, getting the buy-in from the leadership and, and your other fellow warrant officers as well. That'll make you successful. It's been said that experience is the best teacher. Uh, what experience, success, or even failure have you learned the most from? Hey, so you're going to have failures and, and I'm not afraid to admit it. Um, when you do have failures, again, you own up to them, you know, and, and you have to reflect on it and then you change your course and drive on. But here's the piece of the puzzle that I think is critical to warrant officers is understanding the seven principles of mission command. I mean, truly that's what makes us successful. If you can understand those principles of mission command, that mission command element of what they want we can take action, you know, and, and the successful warrant officers that you and I have worked with and seen, they're the ones that they don't sit back. They don't wait for the commander to say anything. They understand what that mission command is. They understand those principles. They take action. They take the initiative and they run. And here's the funny thing is you could run with it and you don't know your left and right boundary limits. That's what I tell a lot of people until you exceed them. So that's up to those commission officers to reel us back in. It's like, hey, chief, I, I need you to do this or that, you know, and it's like they can pull us back a little bit. Or if we fail and we didn't meet the intent, then, hey, I've learned from it and drive on. What I have found is commanders that give you that clear guidance, that give you those clear expectations. Those are great leaders because, number one, they're, they're giving you their expectations. Number two, they're allowing you to go out there and, and make mistakes. And if they help you, you know, to reorganize, get back on track after you've made those mistakes and help you develop yourself, those are some great leaders and you should latch on to them. Us as senior leaders, you know, as W5s, hey, those W2s and W3s we work with day in and day out, they're they're learning and they're cutting their teeth and they, they're going to make mistakes, but we have to, you know, sit there and help develop them. And, and I've been lucky and fortunate that I've had mentors um, throughout the years that have allowed me to do that. You know, I just want to tell you, it's been fantastic to share this time with you. I know that our listeners have enjoyed it. So uh, just want to say thank you again. Hey, thank you very much again for the opportunity and uh, look forward to talking to folks out there. So, uh, hey, please, uh, any National Guard issues, give me a call. I'm, I'm good. I'll help uh, support <laughs> you any way I can. So thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Hey, it is so great to hear senior warrant officers talk both doctrine and share mentorship with those they seek to serve. Thank you so much for your time and sharing how a senior warrant officer's leadership uh, can ultimately contribute to meet the doctrinal requirements for both the current and future fight. For updates on Cohort W and the Warrant Officer Historical Foundation, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Simply search for at WOHF1918 or the Warrant Officer Historical Foundation. Finally, to learn more about how you can support programs like this, please visit warrantofficerhistory.org.